I think most of us would agree that much of the Bible is unfamiliar to those who are living in our world today. And what I mean by that is while many people in our world know and understand what a Bible is, they can locate it, identify it off a bookshelf, most are not familiar with the writings and the teachings it contains. However, that's not true of all of Scripture. There are a handful of verses in the Bible that are very recognizable to even unsaved people because you see them plastered in many different places and in multiple various settings. And today we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that contains such a verse. And the passage is John chapter 3. And one of the verses we're going to be looking at is verse 16 where John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I think most of you would agree with me that John 3.16 is probably the single most recognizable verse in the entire Bible. Listen, even in the secular world in which we live, we see John 3.16 literally everywhere. You find it on bumper stickers. You see it on billboards. You find it on jewelry, bracelets, necklaces. You see it held up at football games when field goal kickers are trying to kick the ball through the goalposts, fans holding up John 3.16. You even see it on the bottom of soda cups and french fry containers at certain fast food joints around our country. John 3.16 is a very loved and cherished verse for many of us, but unfortunately, I think our familiarity with that statement often robs us of the shock value that truth would have had in the context in which it was originally communicated. To Christians living in the 21st century, John 3.16 is pretty routine for us. Most of us memorize this verse at a young age, so there's really nothing new about it. It's, It's really second nature for us. However, I think it's worth pointing out that the man to whom it was said was literally devastated by the words that are contained in that verse. To us, these words are extremely familiar. But the man to whom it was spoken was absolutely shocked because it was totally foreign to his understanding of what it meant to be saved. To see the account firsthand, open your Bibles, if you would, and meet me at John chapter 3. Over to John chapter 3, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16. John chapter 3, 1 through 16, and please follow along as I read this fairly uh, lengthy section in John's account. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And John writes this, he said, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into his a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes, and so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things? 
Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and we testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Uh, No one ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, because we're jumping right in the middle of a book here, I think it might be worth my mentioning the purpose, the entire purpose of John's gospel and John's account. The purpose of John's gospel is clearly stated over in chapter 20 and verse 30, where John writes this. He says, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. Why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, the purpose of John's gospel is to present Jesus Christ as the Son of God in order for people to get saved. That's the whole goal of John's gospel. It's salvation, salvific. He wants people to find out who Jesus is in order that they might be saved. In fact, the word believe is used a total of 98 times in this one gospel alone, which further affirms John's intended purpose for writing this gospel account. The overarching theme of John's gospel is salvation. And if there's one chapter in the entire gospel in which that theme comes through loud and clear, it is John chapter 3. In fact, this chapter is very unique in that it's the first recorded instance of Jesus laying out the plan of salvation during his earthly ministry. If you're familiar with the Gospels, then you know there were really countless interactions Jesus had with others regarding the Gospel and regarding the good news. In fact, even in this one Gospel alone, there are several recorded instances of that, thing, of that very thing taking place. For example, in chapter 4, the very next chapter, you have the presentation of the Gospel to the Samaritan woman. In chapter 5, you have the presentation of the Gospel to the paralytic. In chapter 6... You have the the presentation of the gospel to the huge crowds of people. Uh, John records 5,000, although many commentators believe it was close to 15,000, 20,000, including women and children. And of course, uh, Jesus fed them miraculously with a few loaves of bread, the two fish. And we have the presentation of the gospel in John chapter 6. You also have in chapter 8 the presentation of the gospel to the woman who was caught in adultery. And on and on, as you read through John, on and on does the story go. And so all that to say, there are numerous recorded accounts of Jesus' teachings and Jesus' presentations on the subject of eternal life. But listen to this. John chapter 3 records the very first one. This is the first time that through the lips of Jesus, God's salvation plan is revealed. And in this case, it's revealed in the terms of new birth, or it's revealed in the, in the terms of being born again. Now, one of the things I hope will occur this morning is that our study of verses 1 through 15 will uh, enhance your appreciation and mine of John 3.16. And what I mean is I hope our study of verses 1 through 15 will cause you to greater appreciate the awesome weight of the statement verse 16 forms. 
I think we would all agree that John 3.16 is a great verse in and of itself. Is it not? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a powerful verse. What an awesome verse. But in my opinion, listen, when you look at the story and the context leading up to that verse, it just explodes with great force and with deeper and greater significance. Now, before we jump into the passage, this entire section in chapter 3 really can be broken down into at least four parts. And you can see that on the outline on the, uh, the back of your bulletin there, the outline in front of you. You see four parts. Number one, you see the need for new birth, which consists of verses 1 through 3. You have the significance of new birth, which consists of verses 4 through 8. You have the confusion over new birth, which is, consists of verses 9 through 13. And you have the path to new birth, which consists of verses 14 through 16. And so you have the need, you have the significance, you have the confusion, and you have the path. Let's begin with the first section, beginning in verse 1. John writes this. He says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Well, what do we know about Nicodemus? Well, from this one verse alone, listen, we're already given a pretty good idea of what Nicodemus was like. The first thing we're told in this passage is that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And the question is, well, who are the Pharisees? Well, to put it simply, the Pharisees were the elite religious group in the nation of Israel at this point in time. If you were living in Israel back at this point in time, you would have considered this group the most religious. You would have considered this group the most devout due to their fervent zeal to follow the Mosaic law. However, there was a major problem with this group. And the problem was that they put a major emphasis on external religion. And they put a major emphasis on external purity and external rituals. But there was no genuine internal desire to follow after the Lord. Do you remember what Jesus said to this group in Matthew 23? Let's turn to that passage and take a look. Hold your place here in John 3. Turn back to Matthew chapter 23, if you would. Matthew chapter 23, and notice... What Jesus says here, and by the way, this whole chapter, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. And we pick up in verse 23 where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, that is justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. That's an exact description of what the Pharisees were like. They kept all their little man-made laws that they had come up with, and they let the main ones go. In other words, the laws that they ignored were the ones that really mattered. Verse 25, Jesus continues his rebuke. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. That strong rebuke by Jesus really summarizes what the Pharisees were all about. They were a group of religious people that looked really good on the outside, but that's as deep as it went. Now let's go back to John chapter 3. Back to John chapter 3, the Pharisees, who were they? They were a group of people who strictly observed the law of God. They were a group who followed a system in which they dotted every religious I. They crossed every religious T. They even went so far as to add to the commandments in the law so as a way to ensure 
a right standing with God. And of course, if you're familiar with the stories behind that, you know how ridiculous and how tedious that system became. Take, for example, the Sabbath day law. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, God told the nation of Israel to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Now that sounds fairly simple, doesn't it? Remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. But you know what the Pharisees did? They took that one simple law and they expanded it to a section or a length of 24 chapters to explain how the Sabbath law was to be observed. And here are some of the examples of the bizarre ways the Pharisees approached the Sabbath law. Here's one example. To tie a knot on the Sabbath day was illegal because it was considered work. However, if you could tie or untie the knot with one hand, that was perfectly acceptable. Here's another one. A Pharisee believed a woman could not look in a mirror on the Sabbath day because if she did, she might see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out, which would violate the no work policy of the Sabbath day. Today we have hair coloring, so we don't have to worry about plucking it out, right? But uh, back then they didn't have that, so uh, that was an issue for them. How about this one? The average Jew who suffered a cold would often gargle vinegar as a, mean to, uh, a means to soothe the, throat, uh, soothe, soothe the pain in his throat. Rather, However, on the Sabbath, the Pharisees believed it was wrong to gargle because that involved work. And so instead of gargling the vinegar, they would have to swallow it directly in order to ensure obedience to the Sabbath day law. And I don't know about you, just as a footnote, I just think swallowing vinegar would do a lot more problems to my stomach than it would help a sore throat, but that's just me. Um, How about this one? A Pharisee can eat an egg on the Sabbath only if he was willing to kill the chicken who laid it on the Sabbath day. In their minds, the chicken should be punished for exerting the effort of laying an egg on such an important day. Well, if you're like me, you're thinking to yourself, that's, that's crazy. I mean, who would ever do that? And the answer is Nicodemus, along with the hundreds of other Pharisees who lived back in Jesus' day. But that's not the only thing we're told about Nicodemus. In addition to being a Pharisee, John tells us that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. This meant that, that Nicodemus was a part of a group known as the Sanhedrin, which was basically the Jewish Supreme Court of that day. Sanhedrin was a group that consisted of 70 men plus the high priest, chosen largely because of their wealth, chosen largely because of their influence, chosen largely because of their uh, family heritage. And so all that to say, Nicodemus, listen, he wasn't just your average guy on the street. He was a somebody. He represented the very best of what Israel had to offer in terms of religion. And more than that, we're told in verse 10 that Nicodemus Listen to this. He was the teacher of Israel. And that's not coming from the Jews. That's coming from the lips of Jesus himself. In other words, Nicodemus was one of the foremost theologians and preachers of his day. That's quite a resume. Nicodemus was at the very top of the very top of the Jewish religious system. But what we'll see in a moment is that though he was the cream of the crop as far as religion goes, There was something about this Jesus that really bothered him. There was something about Jesus that bothered his soul. There was something about Jesus that aided his mind. And so verse 2 says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The fact that Nicodemus went to Jesus by night seems to imply that Nicodemus wasn't ready to openly associate with Jesus at this particular time. 
It seems that he feared the consequences of what might result from a meeting such as this one, whether it was disfavor with his fellow Pharisees or maybe just being looked down upon by the average Jew. We can't say for sure because the text doesn't tell us. But what matters most, listen, is that Nicodemus went to Jesus. He was willing to come. It doesn't matter when. What matters is that he came. And from the statement he makes, it's obvious that Nicodemus knew there was something unique about this Jesus, something special about him. You say, well, how did he know about Jesus? Well, back in chapter 2, we're told that while Jesus was in Jerusalem during Passover, he performed a number of signs. He performed a number of miracles. And evidently, Nicodemus either witnessed those miracles firsthand or he heard about them from some of the other Jews. And so he went to Jesus to investigate, to find out who this man really was. He wanted to know what he was about. In verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if you're like me, you're probably thinking to yourself, did I just miss something? Did, did I just, I mean, all, Nic- all Nicodemus did up to this point was si- simply acknowledge that Jesus was a unique individual. All that he acknowledged at this point, that he was a unique teacher of God or, 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 or somehow he must be sent from God because of the miracles and the signs that he did. He didn't ask Jesus any question. And yet verse 3 says, Jesus answered Nicodemus as if Nicodemus had asked a question. And so what's going on here? I'll tell you exactly what's going on. Jesus, as the omniscient and all-knowing Son of God, knew exactly the issue that was weighing on Nicodemus' heart. He, he knew that Nicodemus had one thing on his mind, and that was how to enter the kingdom of God. Of course, according to the Pharisees, a Jew entered the kingdom by strict observance of the law. As I mentioned earlier, it was a strict religion of works where you dotted every religious eye, You crossed every religious tea. You toiled, you labored, you did everything you possibly could to enter the kingdom of God. As we've already discussed, Nicodemus had done that. And so it seems as though he's coming to Jesus looking for some kind of affirmation. He's coming to Jesus looking for some kind of support that he's doing it right and that he's on the right path. He's looking to get, again, support, affirmation, confirmation. He's going to Jesus probably assuming, he's probably going to say, Nicodemus, you don't need to do anything else. You're perfectly fine. You are on the right track. And yet notice the response Jesus gives. In verse 3, Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, in our minds, this statement may not seem like all that big of a deal because we talk about the importance of being born again all the time, don't we? We address the importance of that from the pulpit. You hear about it in your various Sunday school classes. You, you read about it in various Christian literature, Christian books. This is something that is familiar to us. But to Nicodemus, this would have dropped like a bomb. Jesus essentially told Nicodemus, you want to enter the kingdom of God? Then you need to set aside everything that you've ever done. And you need to start all over. That's basically the message Jesus had for Nicodemus. He basically told him, Nicodemus, everything you've done up to this point won't lead you anywhere except to eternal damnation. And so you need to set aside all of that and you need to start from ground zero. Now to appreciate how shocking this statement would have been, listen, you have to remember who Jesus is dealing with here. Let me remind you, Nicodemus represented the very best of religious Israel. He took religion to its apex. He took religion to its highest and its noblest level. Nicodemus did all the ceremonies, 
He followed all the commands. He observed all the rules. He engaged in all the religious activities. He knew when to stand up. He knew when to sit down. He worked himself all the way through the system to the very top of the religious elite. And yet what we see here is that Jesus, listen, wasn't impressed by any of it. None of it. Why? Because ceremonies and rules and laws and religious activities can't do anything to save a person or make a person right with God. And that is why when Jesus lays out the plan of eternal salvation, he uses the analogy of being born. I mean, just think about this. How much did you contribute to your own birth? Answer is pretty simple, isn't it? Nothing, right? I mean, we can't even remember that event, let alone have any contribution toward it. Of course, if you're uh, parents and you have children, you know how uh, joyful of an occasion it is to, to have a child, to give birth to a child, those kind of things. But for a child, that's, I'm sure, a pretty traumatic event. So it's the grace of God that we can't remember that event. But uh, we can't remember it, let alone have any contribution toward it. So the analogy Jesus uses here, it's pretty simple. Listen, just like we do nothing to contribute to our physical birth, what Jesus says here is there's nothing we can do to contribute to our spiritual birth. The only way that we can be born again is by believing in Jesus Christ and by placing our faith in him. Well, as I said a moment ago, you can imagine the kind of shock this message would have been in the ears of Nicodemus. Again, he was the elite. He had the garb. He looked the part. He talked the talk as far as religion went. And notice how Nicodemus responds in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, one thing we need to realize is that Nicodemus, listen, he was a pretty intelligent guy. And so don't take this to mean that he didn't have any clue about what Jesus was saying here. As we'll see in a moment, it seems that Nicodemus understood at least somewhat of what Jesus was saying, but he was having a really hard time embracing it. He was having a really hard time accepting it. He had a really hard time accepting the fact that he had to scrap everything that he had ever done and start from the bottom. Nicodemus essentially says to Jesus, are you saying I have to throw out everything I've ever done in my entire life? That would be so hard. That's about as impossible as a person entering his mother's womb for the second time. And yet when Jesus told Nicodemus of his need to start all over, when Jesus told Nicodemus of his need to be born again, he didn't stutter. In fact, Jesus reiterates this necessity of new birth again in verse 5. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying here? Well, let me first address what he's not saying here. Jesus is not saying that in order to enter the kingdom of God, one needs to be born of water in the sense of being baptized. I mean, that would totally contradict the rest of the New Testament, which teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Please understand that baptism, listen, though it's an important, a very important step of obedience, it doesn't have any saving effect. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 2, John goes on to tell us that, that while the disciples had a, a significant baptism ministry, Jesus didn't perform any uh, baptisms during his earthly ministry. And let me tell you, if baptism could save, he probably would have been involved in that work. Another issue to consider is the salvation of the thief on the cross. And you remember the story. In Luke 23, 42, the thief, while hanging on a cross next to Jesus, said to him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, that's impossible. Because in order to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be baptized. And there's no way that's going to happen. There's no way that's going to happen if you were hanging on a cross. Is that what Jesus said to him? No. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me. Where? In paradise. That's right. Listen, Jesus would have never made that promise to that man if he had to be baptized in order to be saved. And so mark this in your minds. Baptism doesn't save. Salvation cannot be accomplished by any type of external bath. If it did save people, then our method of evangelism would change drastically here at Grace Bible Church. We would just take everyone over to Bozeman Beach and we'd line everybody up along the shore and we'd push them in on the count of three and, and, uh, and it would be done, right? I mean, if salvation comes by water, why not? Um, on a more serious note, baptism or being dunked in any kind of water, listen, it can't save. It doesn't save. And so the question is, hey, what was Jesus referring to when he spoke of being born of water? And in order to answer that question, listen, we need to remind ourselves who Jesus is speaking to here. We need to put ourselves in the context of John chapter 3. Here on this occasion, listen, Jesus was speaking to a very religious Jewish man. And in a religious Jewish person's mind, water stood for one thing, purification, cleansing. In fact, when Jesus mentioned water and the Spirit together, Nicodemus' mind, as a, as a religious Jew, his mind would have automatically gone back to Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 27, where water is mentioned symbolically to refer to being cleansed from sin. And the Holy Spirit is the one who produces the power to change. And so in essence, what Jesus was telling Nicodemus was this. Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, then you need to repent of your sin and you need to allow the Holy Spirit of God to change you and to purify you from the inside. That is what it meant to be born of water. That is what it means to be born again. It means to experience the internal reconstruction, recreation, renewal, however you want to call it, the, the, the spiritual washing by the Holy Spirit of God. And Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that is what takes place at salvation. The Spirit of God regenerates us. He makes us new creations in Christ. Titus chapter 3 also speaks of the new birth. Hold your place here in John 3. Turn with me, if you would, to the right to Titus chapter 3. Over to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. And the question Paul is answering here is, hey, how are we saved? How do we become right with God? Or maybe in answering the question of Nicodemus' heart, hey, how does one enter the kingdom of God? And notice what Paul says in verse 5. He says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. In other words, there's nothing we can do in our own strength. There's nothing we can do in our own power to save ourselves. Paul says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Listen, that's a description of the new birth. Salvation br brings divine cleansing from sin on the inside. And that cleansing work is accomplished by the Holy Spirit of God. Let's go back to John chapter 3. <clears throat> back to John chapter 3. What Paul speaks of in Titus 3 it's the same thing Jesus speaks of when he's talking to Nicodemus about the need 
to be born of water, the need to be born again. And again, this would have been such a shock to Nicodemus. In the system of the Pharisees, there was such an emphasis on the outside. In the system of the Pharisees, there was such an emphasis on externals and on what people did. And you can almost picture Nicodemus saying, Jesus, why? I mean, we all work so hard and we all do so much. And Jesus, in one conversation, shatters all of that by telling Nicodemus that in order to enter the kingdom of God, he needed to experience new life on the inside. Listen, not as a a result of his own doing, but by the power of the Holy Spirit working in him. In the next verse, Jesus reinforces that truth when he says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, there was nothing Nicodemus could do in his flesh to bring forth new life. All flesh does is produce more flesh. It doesn't do any spiritual good. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his color? Can the leopard get rid of his spots? And the answer is just about as much as you can change your own spiritual condition. It can't happen. And that is why Nicodemus, like every sinner, needed to be recreated from the insight. He needed to experience a rebirth by the Holy Spirit of God. In verse 7, Jesus says, Do not marvel, Nicodemus, that I said this to you. You must be born again. The fact that Jesus tells Nicodemus not to marvel indicates that Nicodemus was probably astonished. Nicodemus was probably surprised. He was probably shocked by that all that Jesus was saying to him. His, you know, eyebrows were probably up to his hairline. His jaw was probably down to his chin. This was something that was hard for Nicodemus to swallow. And what was hard for him to swallow, what was hard for him to accept, is the same thing that is hard for religious people to accept today. And that is the need to set aside one's own works. And that is the need to set aside one's own righteousness and one's own accomplishments and admit the need to be born again. Jesus told Nicodemus he needed to start all over. He needed to be changed on the inside. He needed to experience the regenerating and purifying work of the Holy Spirit in his heart. And perhaps Nicodemus is wondering, well, how can that happen? I mean, you can't even see the Holy Spirit. How is it possible that he can produce such a change in a person's life? And Jesus responds to that issue in verse 8, where he says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, Jesus says, you don't have to be able to see something to know that it's real. I mean, just think about the wind. No one can see the wind at any time, but you know that it's real. How? Because of its results. You can hear it, and you can see the the leaves blow, and you can watch the trees bend. And in a similar way, though you can't see the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, you know that it's real because of the results that you see in that person's life. I mean, just think about it this way. When, When a person gets saved, it's not like you can then put that person in an x-ray machine and, and see any difference, right? It's not like that person can then unzip their chest and, and show you, hey, look, Christ is in me. They, you can't do that. And so the question is, how do you know if a person's been genuinely saved? How do you know if a person's been born again? How do you know if a person has experienced the washing of the regeneration in a person's heart? And the answer is by the results and the change that you see in that person's life. I mean, what other explanation is there? When you have a person who goes from a love for sin to having a love for God, 
And you have a person who goes from having a love for self-pleasure to having a love for the things that please the Lord. And you have a person who goes from having a love for the world system and all that the world has to offer to having a love for the Word of God and a love for the people of God. Listen, what other explanation is there for that type of change in a person's life? One of my favorite missionary stories is the story of George Mueller. And I'm sure many of you who are here this morning are familiar with his story. George Mueller served as a pastor and a missionary in Bristol, England, back in the 1800s. Over the course of his lifetime in ministry, he cared for over 10,000 orphans. He also founded the Scripture Knowledge Institution for Home and Abroad, which was an organization that aided Christian schools and missionaries in distributed Bibles. By the time Mueller died, nearly 2 million Bibles were distributed from his organization. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking to yourself, wow, I mean, what a guy, right? I mean, he must have been, you know, on the right track from the get-go. I mean, he must have had his act together from the very beginning. Not so. As a teenager, George Mueller was a thief, a liar, and a gambler. While his mother was dying, he, at the age of 15, was playing cards with his friends and getting drunk. You say, what was the turning point? Well, the turning point came in college when a friend of his invited him to a Bible study. And shortly after attending that study, he began to regularly read the scriptures. And guess what happened? It changed his life. Listen, at the moment Mueller surrendered his life to Christ, the Spirit of God entered into his life, and things were never, ever the same again. And that's the testimony, isn't it, of the power of the Holy Spirit working in somebody's life. We know the Spirit of God is real. How? Not because we can see him, but because of the transforming impact he has in people's lives. Well, in verse 9, you can see how the confusion continues. Nicodemus answered Jesus and said to him, how can these things be? Listen, Nicodemus is totally blown away because in one conversation, just one, his whole life system has just been turned upside down. Listen, Nicodemus thought he was on the inside. Nicodemus thought he had had it made. He assumed he had an inside track headed right for the kingdom of God. And Jesus shattered all of that by telling him he needed to go back and start from the bottom. He needed to go back and start all over again. What a shock. What a shock this would have been to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, listen, had been involved in religion all of his life. And yet he was blinded to the most important issue. And that was the need to be born again. And you know, as I thought about that, I thought about the fact that religion really is no different today, isn't it? I mean, religion blinds people from reality. And it gives people a false sense of security and that it convinces them that they're good enough already. You ask a religious person, hey, how do you know if you're going to heaven? And they'll answer you, because I've done this, and because I've done that, and because I've accomplished this, and because I've given to that. In other words, they'll point to all their works, and they'll point to all that they've done. And yet Jesus says to Nicodemus that those things have absolutely no place and no contribution to one becoming right with God. And that, of course, was hard for Nicodemus to swallow. And that's why he said to Jesus, how can these things be? In verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know, and we testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Who is Jesus referring to when he says our witness? Well, I think he's probably referring to John the Baptist and just the little group of disciples that were following him at this point in time. 
What Jesus, in effect, is saying is this, Nicodemus, we're not shooting from the hip here. We know what we're talking about, but you're not willing to accept it. You see, that was the biggest problem for Nicodemus in his conversation with Jesus. His biggest problem wasn't in understanding what Jesus had to say. His biggest problem was in embracing it and accepting it and receiving it. If you think about it, the gospel is a pretty simple message. So simple that a child can understand it. So simple that a young person can explain the gospel message to another person. Where it gets complicated is when people reject it in their minds and they refuse to accept what it has to say. In verse 12, Jesus continues, and he says, If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus had just explained the truth of regeneration using earthly terms, namely the the birth of a child. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus, How could you possibly accept spiritual truths that have no earthly illustration if you're not willing to accept my teaching on the new birth. Verse 13, Jesus said, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. And here Jesus is establishing his authority for the statements he has just made regarding the need for new birth and entrance into God's kingdom. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he alone is the only authoritative source on heavenly truth because his origin is heaven, not the earth. And so what Jesus is saying here is, Nicodemus, you need to listen to me. You need to pay attention to what I'm saying because I know what I'm talking about. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, then you must be born again. And this moves us into the last section of our study this morning. Up to this point, we've seen the need for new birth. We've seen the significance of new birth. We've seen the confusion over new birth. And here in this last section, we're going to see the path to new birth. Look at what Jesus said in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The reference to Moses lifting up the serpent goes back to an event that took place in Numbers chapter 21, and we don't have the time to turn there. So let me just summarize what took place there. Israel was in the wilderness, and they started to do what they did best, and that was to complain against the Lord. And so as a consequence, the Lord sent fiery serpents among them as a way to punish them. The result was that many of the Israelites died while many others of them got sick. You say, what happened next? Well, as the story unfolds, the people repented. And so God graciously provided them with a cure. And this was the cure. God told Moses to make a bronze serpent and set it in the midst of the camp. And whoever looked at that bronze serpent, wherever they were at in the midst of the camp, whoever looked at that serpent with eyes of faith would be healed. You say, what's the parallel? The parallel is this. Listen, just as the serpent was elevated as a means of deliverance for the people of Israel, so Jesus would be elevated, that is lifted up on a cross as a means of deliverance from sin and from judgment and from death. And that brings us to the climax of our passage Verse 16, where Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What a powerful statement. Jesus tells us, listen, that salvation is not man earning his way to God, but instead it's God reaching out in love to man. And we have to remember, listen, John 3.16 wasn't stated in a vacuum. We have to remember who he's speaking to. And this this would have been, again, so hard for Nicodemus to hear. 
All of his life he had been working. All of his life he had been laboring. All of his life he had been trying to earn his way into the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells him, Nicodemus, you want to enter the kingdom of God? Then all you need to do is simply believe. All you need to do is simply receive me into your life. That's it. I mean, listen, what Nicodemus didn't need was more rules. What Nicodemus didn't need was more ceremonies or more attendance at church or more prayers or more giving to charities or the more lighting of candles. What Nicodemus needed more than anything else was to be saved from his sin and to be born again by the Spirit of God. Now, as we close, a question I want to answer is this. Hey, whatever happened to Nicodemus? And you know, that's a really good question because John chapter 3 just sort of leaves us hanging. We don't know after John chapter 3 how Nicodemus responded to his conversation with Jesus. So what happened to him? And the answer is a really neat one. The answer is he eventually got saved. He eventually got born again. And we don't know exactly when that event took place, but we know that it happened sometime before John chapter 19. Because in John chapter 19, we're told that Nicodemus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, went to the grave of Jesus to anoint his body. Listen, because by that point, Nicodemus was a believer. After that, we're not told anything else about Nicodemus in the gospel accounts. However, history tells us that Nicodemus, was con- uh, uh, <clears throat> once he was converted, he lost all of his wealth. He was kicked out of the Sanhedrin. He lost all of his property. He lost all of his power. And based upon his devotion to Christ, he was eventually murdered by a mob of people. And some would look at that and think, Nicodemus, man, he lost everything. He lost everything in this world. And that may be true. But it's also true that while Nicodemus may have lost everything in this world, he gained everything in the world to come. And that is the beauty of the grace that we come to find in the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't it? It's a grace that reaches down to the worst of sinners, and it saves us apart from any goodness and from any worthiness on our part. There's a man by the name of John Newton who understood this truth. I'll close with his story. John Newton was raised in a Christian home in which he was taught verses of the Bible, but his mother died when he was only six years old, and he was sent to live with a relative who hated the Bible and mocked Christianity. And so one day at an early age, Newton left home and joined the British Navy as an apprentice seaman. He was wild in those years, and he became exceedingly immoral. He acquired a reputation of being able to swear for two hours without repeating himself. Eventually, he deserted the Navy off the coast of Africa. And you say, well, why Africa? Well, in his memoirs, he wrote that he went to Africa for one reason, and one reason alone, quote, that I might sin my fill. While in Africa, he fell in with a Portuguese slave trader in whose home he was cruelly treated. This man often went away on slaving expeditions, and when he was gone, the power in the home passed to the trader's African wife, the chief woman of his harem. This woman hated all white men, and she took out her hatred on Newton. He says that for months, he was forced to grovel in the dirt, eating his food from the ground like a dog and beaten unmercifully if he touched it with his hands. For a time, he was actually placed in chains. At last thin and unhealthy, Newton made his way through the jungle, reached the sea, and there attracted a British merchant ship making its way up the coast to England. The captain of the ship took Newton aboard, thinking that he had ivory to sell. But when he learned that the young man knew something about navigation uh, navigation as a result of his time in the British Navy, he made him ship's mate. Even then, Newton fell into trouble. One day when the captain was, uh, was ashore, Newton broke out the ship's supply of rum and got the whole crew drunk. He was so drunk himself that when the captain returned and struck him on the head, Newton fell overboard and would have drowned if one of the sailors hadn't quickly hauled him back aboard. Near the end of one voyage, 
as they were approaching Scotland, the ship ran into bad weather and was blown off course. Water poured in and the ship began to sink. The young man was sent down into the hold to pump the water. The storm lasted for days. Newton was terrified, sure that the ship would eventually sink and that he would eventually drown. But there in the hold of the ship, as he pumped water, desperately attempting to save his life, the God of grace, whom he tried to forget, but who had never forgotten him, brought to his mind Bible verses that he had learned in his home from his mother as a child. And right then, Newton was born again, and he was transformed by the Spirit of God. Later, when the storm had passed and he was again in England, Newton began to study theology. He eventually became a distinguished evangelist, preaching even to the queen. And his life story is contained in these words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your precious word. We're grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace that reaches down and saves sinners like each of us who are unworthy and undeserving of your great love and your great mercy. What a gift. And Lord, I pray for any person here this morning who is yet to receive that gift. Maybe they're here this morning like Nick Nicodemus wondering, how can I enter the kingdom of God? How can I get right with God? Lord, I pray that you would use what we consider this morning in John chapter 3 to touch their hearts and to help them see that there's nothing we can do in our own strength. There's nothing we can do in our own power to redeem ourselves. It's only by placing our faith in Jesus Christ and in his finished work on the cross that we can experience the richness of eternal life that comes only from you. And Father, for those of us who do have a relationship with you, I pray that the good news of the gospel that it would never grow stale in our minds. May we always marvel at the richness of that gift and in the richness of your grace, which is not merely good. It's not merely great. It is simply amazing. And Father, we rejoice in your amazing grace this morning as we worship together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.